Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. As always, I'd like to kick our program off by welcoming our U.S. military service personnel who tune in on the Internet from outposts around the world. Thank you for being with us again. Our guest today is the former Special Inspector General for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, better known as TARP, Mr. Neil Borofsky. He'll be joining us on the program in just a few minutes. In a year that's been inundated with political spin and where you're going to hear a lot of things tailored to make both political parties and nominees sound good, we need to pay close attention to what watchdogs like Borofsky have to say about the systemic problems we face in our nation's capital. You've heard me say this more than once on this program, folks. When our problems are complex, convoluted, and systemic, it may not matter who you plug into that system. It's a lot like like worrying about what kind of gas you put in a car when the car is missing its clutch. You can fill it with any gas you want, even push the pedal to the floor. But that doesn't mean you're going to get anywhere. Before we speak with Mr. Borofsky, let me give you a little background about his road to Washington. Borofsky grew up the youngest of three children in the area of Miami, Florida. He earned his undergraduate degree in economics from the Wharton School of Business and graduated with honors from New York University School of Law. He worked for a short period of time as a lawyer in private practice before taking a pay cut to join the U.S. District Attorney's Office in 2000. In this role, he prosecuted some of the most dangerous drug traffickers in the world, including having the distinction of filing the largest narcotics indictment in U.S. history against 50 leaders of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. There is no doubt this experience prepared Borofsky for his next job as senior trial counsel for the mortgage fraud group, where he was known for his take-no-prisoner style. He was an aggressive prosecutor, often bringing the most egregious offenders to tears. Then in 2008, less than 30 days after President George Bush nominated Borofsky to oversee TARP, he was confirmed by the Senate as Special Inspector General for the Troubled Asset Relief Program. We'll be talking to him more about that in just just a minute. Today, Mr. Borofsky is a senior fellow at New York University School of Law, where he is known for breaking down extremely complex financial products and the dangers these instruments pose in terms that even I can understand. I should also add that he has a 
runaway best-selling book on his hands titled Bailout, an inside account of how Washington abandoned Main Street while rescuing Wall Street. And if you don't have a copy yet, let me be the first to tell you to go out and get a copy. It is a sobering behind-the-scenes look at the unholy alliance between big business and government. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report an individual to whom this nation owes a great debt, Mr. Neil Borofsky. Welcome to the program, Mr. Borofsky. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for that extraordinarily kind introduction. I appreciate it. Well, we try to keep it to the facts, and uh, you have such a impressive biography. Uh, I'm afraid that there wouldn't be any opportunity to do it justice in a short program like this, but I do appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. So just to be clear, this new book of yours is not an indictment against either party. Is it fair to say that your purpose was to explain the systemic problems we now face in Washington. No, absolutely. You know, when I came to Washington, although I was I was nominated by President Bush, uh, politically I've been a Democrat all my life. Uh, I even, you know, contributed to Obama's campaign back in 2008. And um, I didn't approach the job from a political perspective, but, but part of me thought that I would see a change with the change of administrations and from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. And one of the most you know, surprising things to me as, I, as, as that, that magical date of January 20, 2008 passed was just how little things actually changed and just how similar the two political parties and their operatives in Washington are when it comes to the fundamental control and deference of, to the Wall Street banks and financial institutions that not only were dictating the terms of their own bailouts, but really dictating the terms of, of economic and financial policy in this country. So it, it, it is a, if it's an indictment, it's an indictment of both parties, um, because it, there really is very little daylight, and I saw very little difference um, in the approaches um, of the Bush, uh, Bush appointees and then later the Obama appointees. This feels like you were up against a cultural problem. Yes, I, I think that that certainly was part of it. So um, I, as you noted, I was a federal prosecutor for, for eight years in, mm-hmm. in New York when I came down. Um, and, you know, I came down, of course, in the heart of the financial crisis. It was, it was, you know, a little bit after. It was December of 2008. So it was sort of after the original outlay of TARP funds. The you know, hundreds of billions of dollars had already gone out the door and, and went out with very little oversight. Um, you know, my job was as Special Inspector General, um, I was created, in, or my office was created, I was created by my parents, but, but the office, was, of course, was created in the same legislation um, that created TARP and, and created this agency with sort of a dual role, both to provide oversight by um, through um, regular reports and bringing transparency to the actions of Treasury and the recipients of TARP funds, uh, but also, and I think the primary reason I was hired, was to head up a brand-new law enforcement agency that was going to police the TARP program and try to you know, essentially lock up, put in jail, and deter criminals who would you know, inevitably try to steal or take criminal advantage of, of, of this massive program. Uh, okay, but uh, let, let me ask you this. Many of the TARP funds had already been dispersed, so wasn't this a little bit like retrofitting oversight? You know, it, in, in some cases it was, because the original outlay to the, to the, the biggest banks um, all happened, you know, well before I got there. And that was $125 billion out the door. Um, and so what I, so basically I, I had two roles when I, I think when it came to this. One was 
there were certainly a lot, of, a lot of new programs that were being rolled out, especially in the beginning on almost a daily basis. There was 13 TARP programs at, 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 to be, in, in total, and as these new programs were being developed and announced, I was trying desperately to put in some sort of taxpayer protections uh, so that they wouldn't be so vulnerable to fraud. But I was also trying to do some look-backs for, for the money that had already gone out the door and try to bring a level of transparency and accountability um, so we could still help to deter fraud and also help make sure some of the policy goals that were announced for all this money to, to take place. And I think the, the culture clash that you described is, you know, I was coming at this from a prosecutor's point of view, a skeptical point of view that looked at these institutions that, in, in my view, helped just bring about this global financial crisis um, and make sure that they weren't getting windfalls, that they weren't taking advantage. The people I was dealing with at Treasury, by and large, had all come from those same financial institutions. They came from Goldman Sachs and Bear Stearns and Merrill Lynch. Um, so naturally, there's going to be a clash of cultures. I was, you know, my job was to be sort of a squinty-eyed prosecutor uh, to, to really, you know, try to hold these banks' feet to the fire to accomplish the goals. The attitude I got from the, the Treasury people, um, again, across administrations, was one that was very deferential. I was told repeatedly that I didn't need to worry about my concerns about loopholes or lack of transparency or conflicts of interest because the banks would never, ever, in their, in their words, quote, unquote, risk their reputations by putting profit over uh, the public interest. But that's so exactly that's what they had done, uh, in fact, in, it, that caused the bailout. Isn't that right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and, and they, but again, I, you know, for the people I was dealing with, they all had came from, profited from, and look, all of them were eventually okay, so I just want to paint through uh, that system. Right. I just want to paint the picture here. You come in after, uh, uh, what, $125 billion of checks has already been written. Uh, you're asked to provide oversight. Now you're running to catch up with more checks that are going out and being dispersed, and you don't come from a banking culture. Do, do yeah, I have it right? Absolutely. Uh, okay, so you walk into that environment, and uh, you're not going to be a popular fellow. <laughs> uh, that, that's to put it mildly. I was, I was definitely not a popular fellow um, because I was saying you know, the uncomfortable things that they really didn't want to hear. Um, and they didn't want to have restrictions. They didn't want to bring transparency. They wanted to trust. Uh, they wanted. They they believed that if you gave the money to these banks uh, or reporting on on things as simple as what are they doing with the money, how are they spending our money, uh, was a was a dispute that lasted more than a year and didn't end until I was cursed out by by Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner um, <laughs> well, for daring to suggest that well, it wasn't transparent enough. I I think uh, it takes a lot of gall to actually ask how they're spending the taxpayers' money. Now we have to take a short commercial break. When we come back, we're just we're going to find out just where all that tarp money. Went and how much of it has come back. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Costa Report. There's no question that selling a home can be a tricky business when the economy is uneven. But here's a little bit of good news. Not only are financing options opening up, America's love affair with the Monterey Peninsula still continues. Homes that are priced and marketed right are moving. Hi, I'm Judy Profetta, owner-broker of Alon Pinnell Realtors in Carmel, where we're happy to report that inventories are coming down and homes are selling. So if you're getting ready to sell or listing your home, call Alon Pinnell Realtors in Carmel at 831-622-1040 or stop by our offices on the corner of Ocean and Dolores or our main office on Unipero between 5th and 6th in downtown Carmel. Alon Pinnell Realtors, serious brokers for serious sellers. 
Now, here's something to think about. If we're having the same problems in the United States that every other country is struggling with, then are these problems really domestic issues? At what point do we wake up and say, hey, if it's happening to everyone, it means it's happening to our species? That's why I'm asking you to read The Watchman's Rattle, because when you do, you'll see that the very idea that there are domestic and international threats is a myth. All of the problems we face today, problems like unemployment, debt, climate change, terrorism, nuclear proliferation, even the spread of pandemic viruses involve other nations. So please take a moment to pick up the Watchman's Rattle. It's a perspective you'll not find anywhere else, and it offers us solutions you won't find anywhere else. Get the Watchman's Rattle. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Ben Loman Market. Low price, great savings, quality, and service that doesn't always cost you more. Andy Gustafson. My job is the produce manager at Ben Loman Market. I do uh, all the ordering, quality control, bringing in new items, making sure everything is nice out on the rack for the customer to buy. I have worked here 25 years. I personally love the customers we have. I love working for the owners I have. And between Comparing those two together, it's a real easy, nice, fun job. My favorite is apples. Uh, uh, Any kind of apple, I love eating apples. My favorite vegetable is probably Italian squash. We have plenty of fresh product, both in produce, meat, deli. We have, I think, a very uh, warm crew, and we really try to make the customer happy. We really appreciate our customers. Ben Loman Market. Compare and save. A proud member of Think Local First, Santa Cruz County. Are you a faithful KSL listener? Do you listen only during the week or weekends as well? For example, Sundays at 11 a.m., the week review with Dave Michaels and Thomas Hughes, followed by Dr. Pete Peppery. Oh, after a couple of three hours of old-time radio, we have... Sunday at 4 with me, your host, Dave Allen, where we talk about esoteric, metaphysics, quantum physics, everything positive, anything unusual, more happy radio, more positive radio. Sundays at 4 p.m. with me, your host, Dave Allen, right here on AM 1080 KSEO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and our guest today is the former Special Inspector General of TARP and best-selling author of Bailout, an inside account of how Washington abandoned Main Street while rescuing Wall Street, Mr. Neil Borofsky. So as I understand it, uh, about $700 billion was authorized by Congress, and the SIGTARP website indicates that about $400 billion was actually paid out. So I have to believe that that had a lot to do with your oversight. <laughs> and you weren't exactly known as an easy touch. Um, so in your view, why was less money than was authorized actually needed? You know, essentially, it was it was a number of different choices and a number of, as as you said, a certain uh, announced programs that we were able to head off. Like one, for example, was a, a trillion dollar program with with a T uh, that was going to mix TARP money and Fed money and private money. And you know, this was a program that Secretary Geithner announced. 
that would have just been this devastating playground for fraud. It just riddled with conflicts of interest and opportunities uh, for these Wall Street institutions to really uh, capitalize and, and, and have enormous profits upside for them with all the downside for the taxpayer. And we were able to successfully beat that back, not, not through Treasury, of course, but working with Congress and even the Federal Reserve. Uh, we were able to eventually convince them to withdraw their support for this program because it was so obviously dangerous on its face um, with such a risk. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is that a lot of the announced money uh, to help struggling homeowners. You know, one of the, the, the fundamental core promises of TARP was not just to rescue the banks, uh, but also to, 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 rest, to do something about the ongoing and raging foreclosure crisis that still plagues us. And, and there, Treasury's programs were, were so poorly designed and so horribly managed that uh, only a small fraction of the money that had been set aside actually got spent. Mm-hmm. So now, as of June of this year, it looks as if uh, all but about $109 billion of TARP uh, has been recovered. I- is that right? Uh, that's right. And, you know, the money is sort of, um, you know, there's, a, there's hundreds of smaller community and regional banks that have still not paid back their TARP funds. Uh, we have a large amount of unpaid money in, in AIG, uh, in GM, uh, General Motors, uh, General Motors Auto Financing Company, the GMAC, which is now known as Ally Financial. Um, and, and, and there's some money in the housing programs, although not a lot has been spent. Uh, it, that money will never come back because it's, it's a direct subsidy. Mm-hmm. So how much of the rest of that $109 billion do you have confidence will come back, the AIG, GM, and GMAC money? Well, I think for for you know for 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 those those companies, it's really going to depend on how they do, um, and if they do well, uh, because we own stock in them, we own we own we have ownership equity interest in those institutions. So if they do really well uh, over time, their stock price will go up. We'll recover more money, and if not, it'll go down. And and one of the reasons why you see these treasury projections sort of go up and down, they're sort of tracking the stock prices of these various stocks. So so AIG is doing relatively well, and. You know, I think the projection is that we'll lose at least on the TARP side, sort of ten, fifteen billion dollars uh, on for AIG um, and GM. I think is is we're probably looking at potentially similar losses. But if the companies do well and their stock price increases, um, then we'll recover more of that money. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. so really, it depends on how they perform. Mm-hmm. Now there are uh, some folks out there that still aren't convinced the government should have bailed out private business and should have just allowed them to collapse. So. My question for you is this, knowing what you know today about the embedded cooperation and even collusion that's taking place between the financial community and our government, was TARP a good idea after all, or should we have just let it uh, deconstruct so that we could have dealt with the systemic issues, the cultural issues that you bring up in your book? You know, I think you know, it, it's sort of hard to know exactly how bad it would have been had we not bailed out the banks. Um, it's certainly, there was a sense of being in Washington, and, you know, I came in a little bit after the worst of the crisis, but there still was that very raw fear that our entire financial system was going to collapse, and that, that continued through early 2009. Um, and, for the, you know, for those on the ground, um, you know, I do believe they, they honestly believed that we would be in a, we would have entered into another Great Depression uh, had they not taken the steps necessary that they believe necessary But in order to, to break that cooperation up, maybe something really dramatic needed to happen because it doesn't sound like this was it. It sounded like you arrived there and everyone wanted to go back to this, uh, you know, this uh, happy relationship between the government and big business. And uh, so, so I'm wondering in retrospect, when you look at it, do you say it was a good thing? 
Well, you're, you're absolutely correct um, that it did. It, that basically, TARP preserved the very, very broken status quo, and the opportunity that we had to break that status quo and sort of remove this 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 structure, this financial system, which just continues to reward these handful of giant institutions that really at the expense of, of the broader public and broader economy um, has been maintained and continued. Um, and had we not bailed them out, uh, we would have had a complete system meltdown, and whatever emerged from its ashes almost certainly would have been would be better than what we have today. Um, it's a tough call, though, if, if, if some of the, pro- the, the predictions that I had heard of what would have happened uh, were true. I mean, the amount of suffering nationwide and globally would have been, you know, it, it's hard to sort of bargain for that type of thing. So really what we, you know, what we should have done, and, and the real missed opportunity was to use the bailouts and use that as, as an opportunity to fix the financial system. Um, but unfortunately, you may be right. That just might not have been possible to the extent that we, we protected the status quo, that those entrenched powers were ever going to lose their grip on power. I agree with you. By, it was such an opportunity, and it was a missed one. Um, and, and, you know, and I think what's really important is that it wasn't just a missed opportunity. These were a series of conscious choices by our government officials not to take those opportunities, because there certainly was you know, the, the anger in the country and the, the popular uh, perception, which was a correct one, which was that this bailout was essentially you know, transferring tax dollars from, from, from all of America into the hands and the pockets of, these, of, of, of a handful of executives, was outrageous. And there was certainly the political support to do something about it. And it was, you know, it was frankly, it was the Obama administration. It was Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner uh, acting on behalf of the Obama administration, going up and down the halls of Congress and lobbying against the types of meaningful reforms that would have broken that grasp that the banks had uh, over our government. Um, and they really went to bat to protect and maintain the status quo um, when there was some bipartisan support to break up the banks and do something about it. Um, and that's, that, is, that was a remarkably unfortunate choice. And, you know, as you suggested, I think quite accurately, the, probably our next opportunity to do something about it won't happen until the next financial crisis inevitably strikes. And, and given how we've maintained a, a broken status quo uh, that has all those bad incentives for these, these large institutions to take on, pile on risk, confidence that they'll get to keep the profits and that we, the taxpayers, will bear the, 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 the negative effects if those bets go bad, uh, we're going to have another financial crisis. And it may be only be then that we have the opportunity to fix what's so obviously broken for so much of the country. Yeah, I, I really admire people who try to preempt crisis and do whatever they can. And obviously, uh, TARP was an intervention to prevent that crisis. But I think we have to take a hard look at what TARP did and and the the change that's needed and perhaps the impact that uh, has to trigger that kind of change. So while I thought TARP was really necessary and I was just as afraid as everybody else, all the American people were terrified that we were going to experience a, another depression uh, and uh, and that the consequences would be very severe. Um, I felt that way also. But in hindsight, I, I'm not sure. I feel very ambivalent about that. Now, we have to take another short break. When we come back, we'll try to bust a few myths about TARP and find out what the next president must do to avoid a second crisis. You're listening to the Costa Report.
There aren't many things you can trust these days, but thankfully you can still trust your taste buds. That's why I want to tell you about Caraccioli Cellars. Recently, I stopped by their tasting room right there on Dolores Street in downtown Carmel to sample their Pinot Noir. And well, folks, let me put it this way. I did not stop there. The Pinot was so far and above what you'd expect from a family-owned winery that I had to try their Chardonnay, Brut Rosé, and Brut Cuvée just to make sure the Pinot wasn't some fluke. And you know what? This may be the one and only time you hear me, Rebecca Costa, mention a winemaker on the air. If you don't know Caraccioli Cellars, then get your taste buds down to their tasting room on Dolores Street and ask them to pour you the same wines that won me over. Caraccioli Cellars. Memorize that name because you're going to hear a lot about them. This caliber of wine doesn't stay a secret for long. Caraccioli Cellars. It's what I serve at my table, and you'll be proud to serve it at yours. Robert Frost said, good fences make good neighbors. But I say, bamboo privacy hedges make really good neighbors. Hello, I'm Larry Gullman of Bamboo Giant on Freedom Boulevard in Aptos. Bamboo Giant features the best bamboo species for our local climate, which means we have the right bamboo for you. Listen to what customers have to say. My name's Amy Brooks. I'm from San Jose. I had a new fence built, and it left a little space between me and my neighbor. Love my neighbor, but didn't we just didn't need to be in each other's business. And so I looked at bamboos online, thinking it would be very simple, and come to find out there's 8,000 varieties of bamboo, and the only ones I knew about were those little squiggly ones. So I went to Bamboo Giant and Aptos, and he had two varieties for me to pick from. And so I looked at those two and picked the one I like. The privacy problem has been solved. Visit Bamboo Giant and walk our 30 acres of naturally growing bamboo groves. You will be truly amazed at the diversity, and you will see just how easy it can be to use bamboo to bring privacy to your home. Bamboo Giant is located at 5601 Freedom Boulevard in Aptos and on the web at BambooGiant.com. It's out there. Faster, stronger, more agile. Introducing the all-new John Deere Gator RSX 850i. 62 horsepower, 53 miles per hour. The RSX 850i. It's a whole new species of Gator. See it in action at JohnDeere.com slash Gator or wrestle one down at your local RDO Equipment Company. Not only does RDO Equipment Company have the new Gators, they've got all the bells and whistles to go with them. Customer-focused, quality-driven, RDO Equipment Company. Find your new Gator RSX 850i as well as all the equipment you need to manage your land at RDO Equipment. Whether you have one acre or hundreds of acres, RDO Equipment's knowledgeable and experienced sales and parts departments help you find the right equipment and parts for your needs. And RDO staff of service professionals will keep your equipment running so you can keep working. Get the right equipment for your job at RDO Equipment in Salinas and Monterey and RDOEquipment.com. If you're a veteran of Iraq or Afghanistan, like me, coming home can be harder than expected. But it turns out I wasn't alone. At IAVA.org, there's a free online community of thousands of vets who've got your back. Whether it's managing the transition home or everyday stuff like finding a nice sweater for my dog. Sweater? <laughs> okay, maybe not that. Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America is there for you. Join our community at IAVA.org. We got your back. Brought to you by IAVA and the Ad Council. I'm Ethan Behrman, host of Smoke-Filled World. Each week, I cut through the smoke-filled world of politics and current events to bring key issues and figures into sharper view. I have my finger on the transnational pulse. Tune into the show for interviews with compelling and connected guests. I'll be taking your calls while presenting ideas that are left, right, and forward. Listen to Ethan Behrman's Smoke-Filled World. 6 to 8 p.m. Sundays here on KSEO AM 1080.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Mr. Neil Borofsky. And moving right along, there are many experts who are saying that in the long run, the bailout will be a big profitable windfall for the American people. And frankly, I haven't quite been able to figure that out. So so tell me, is that a TARP myth or is there some truth behind that? No, no, that's that's a myth. I mean, all you have to do is you look at... um you know, you know, Treasury's own accounting and their own estimates, and and they're projecting tens of billions of dollars of losses. So that's that's not true. What what, what they do is is they like to thin slice, and you know, it's like anything with statistics, especially when the government is pushing out statistics, is they they'll they'll slice a small portion of it and say, look, this program that dealt with these banks is going to turn a profit, uh, and then sort of ignore the losses. And and one of the things I, I learned in Washington that I try to try to make clear in this book is just how often the government does this, uh, particularly the Treasury Department. Um, half-truths, misleading half-truths, um, sort of making statements that may be literally true if you ignore other things. And, and frankly, when I was there, especially when, when things started getting dirty and I was being critical of them, just outright lies that they'll push out in the media um, in an attempt to sort of win the political news cycle and, and win the spin. Uh, but look, that myth is has been pushed out by Treasury consistently, uh, and it's been adopted by a lot of the mainstream media, uh, even though it's fundamentally untrue. You know, it also sort of ignores the enormous costs that that sort of were uh, included in the bailouts that that aren't necessarily tied to specifically to dollars in and or dollars out. Um, you know, including maintaining this a very very broken status quo. And, and I think perhaps most importantly, going back to what we were talking just before the break. You know, TARP was supposed to do a lot more than just save the big banks and have some degree of return for the taxpayer. Like, TARP doesn't get passed. Congress doesn't vote for it based on that premise alone. It was supposed to get money back into the economy so we wouldn't have the massive unemployment that we had. It was supposed to help 4 million people stay in their homes so we didn't have the foreclosure crisis and this, that, that incredible drag on our economy from housing. Like, all these other things are very, very real costs of paths not taken that they were supposed to be taken with TARP. So, so to me, talking about profits for saving a very, very broken system and not fixing it um, isn't something that should be celebrated. Um, and, in, and indeed, you know, when you think about it, shoving hundreds of billions of dollars into a bunch of banks, it's not surprising that we, we kept them from failing. And yet there's a lot of people that think that the interest that will be paid back on the TARP money and the fact that we are now shareholders in stock that allegedly will start increasing in value uh, will become a profit-making proposition for uh, the U.S. government. And I hear you saying that uh, that is pure mythology. And not only that, but it also, I think, it, it, it helps set the, I think a lot, what a lot is being done here is really helping set the groundwork for the inevitable next bailout. Um, mm. So if, if you spin the bailout as a success and talk about how, hey, it didn't even cost us any money, um, the idea is to make it that much more palatable the next time it goes around. And, and you know, I think that's part of the motivation as well as the short-term political gain uh, of trying to, you know, to use the old phrase, put lipstick on a pig. Uh, but look, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that's very striking to me is that, that people don't really, aren't really buying it. And people understand uh, intuitively that there's a lot of deception going on. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why, why I even wrote this book in the first place was to help give some examples and some evidence to support people's anger about what happened, because it, it was a remarkably unfair program uh, that really benefited um, you know, these handful of institutions and their executives 
um, at, often at the expense of everyone else. And and yet, during the first presidential debate, the president made a point of saying that his administration was responsible for the toughest reforms on Wall Street since the 1930s. So would you agree with that? And, and did they go far enough? Well, I think that's one of the sort of half-truths um, mm-hmm. in that... It certainly is. The, it's certainly the biggest set of financial reforms since the 1930s, primarily because we had, um, you know, a really good, effective regulatory system, and that the only thing that happened between uh, the 1930s and, and 2008 financial crisis was weakening them and, and sort of allowing banks go from commercial banks that just took deposits and lent money out, you know, a, a really good functioning system that served us well for 50, 60, 70 years, and replaced it with, uh, by tearing down regulation, um, of these giant financial supermarket mega banks that are, that dominate our economy. Um, I mean, that was the only way of, 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 of regulatory reform um, since the 1930s. And there, there are some good aspects of, of, of regulatory reform that, that are helpful and, and, you know, are quote unquote tough on the banks. But fundamentally, uh, they fail to do the one most obvious thing that would be necessary to prevent another financial crisis, which would have been to go back to 1930s-style regulation, or, or sorry, 1980s-style regulation, mm-hmm. uh, and, and bring back the separation um, so that these big banks aren't these hopelessly conflicted monsters that, that in many ways are, are driven and continue and profit solely based on the presumption that they're going to get bailed out again. Um, and that, I mean, that is a very, very broken system. It, broken it sounds worldwide. like you're pretty convinced that there will be another bailout at some point. I mean, it, it, to me, it seems inevitable, because ultimately you just have to look at incentives. And, and right now, the way the incentives are, are not terribly different from where they were back in 2007 and 2008. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, some of the, most, the biggest fundamental differences, those banks that were too big to fail then are now 25% bigger. Um, and remembering the fear that I saw in the eyes of those Treasury officials um, and their mindset of, of doing anything that was necessary to preserve these, these bayonets, uh, I just can't imagine that, A, we're not going to have another financial crisis because the incentives are going to drive that to happening, uh, and, B, they're going to bail them out again because they're, if, 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 it, if it was fear of Armageddon was there in 2008, when it comes to the next time, the bigger banks mean bigger problems, and we're going to have, and, and you, know, you just look at the state of our economy being an even more fragile state than it was back then, um, we're going to be right back having these same Well, one of the things we don't do well as human organisms uh, is that we don't quite understand exponentiation. <laughs> you know, we always get those questions, those math problems that have to do with exponentiation wrong, and we always think we have more time than we do. Uh, and don't quite understand that uh, that these kinds of collapses creep up on us rather quickly and that they always are larger in their magnitude and damage. Um, it, it, you know, bringing up uh, the presidential debate, the first presidential debate, Romney claimed that the Dodd, that Dodd-Frank designates five banks is too big to fail now. Can you comment on that? Do we have any banks that are too big to fail? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at... Um, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Bank of America, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs. I mean, no one with can I think can really say with a straight face that if that if one of those institutions or a number of those institutions were, were teetering on the brink of collapse, that um, 
that they wouldn't bring the economy down with them. They're just too big. They're too interconnected, bigger than before. Um, and you know, if you, it's, it's sort of hard to compare U.S. banks with other banks because they have different accounting methods. But if you actually rationalize the accounting methods, you know, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase are not just the two biggest banks in the United States. They're arguably the two biggest banks in the world. Um, and the notion that our system could withstand the failure of one of them um, is, to me, is just it's just. So, what's the solution? Do we break it, break them down? We re-regulate and break those banks down into smaller banks. I mean, are we talking about having uh, monopolies in the banking industry that need to be broken apart? Now, I, I I believe so, absolutely. I mean, you have one bank in Wells Fargo that does one third of the mortgages in this country. You have these these multi trillion dollar uh, entities that are too big to fail. They're obviously too big to manage. When you look at um, some of the, the very significant management failures of in recent recent months, including the one at J.P. Morgan Chase with their losing you know seven eight billion dollars on on one trade overseas, I, they just the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and and it also makes them too big to jail. Uh, and, and by that I mean that you know we haven't seen any type of accountability through the criminal justice system for some some pretty you know some frauds that, that obviously occurred. And, and you know part of that is that for the same reason that we went out and bailed the banks out in 2008, there was no realistic way that the Department of Justice is going to indict one of these institutions and risk bringing it down and bringing down the entire financial crisis either. So you have all of those things working for these institutions. Uh, and to me, the only rational thing to do if you have a crisis that's caused by too big to fail institutions is not do what we did and what Dodd Frank did, which was make them bigger and protect their status quo. Uh, you need to break them up. Here, here. Well, we have to take our last break. When we come back, we're going to find out from Mr. Borowski how many Americans who are on the verge of losing their homes were actually helped by the government's foreclosure prevention programs. You're listening to the Costa Report. Now, here's something to think about. If we're having the same problems in the United States that every other country is struggling with, then are these problems really domestic issues? At what point do we wake up and say, hey, if it's happening to everyone, it means it's happening to our species? That's why I'm asking you to read The Watchman's Rattle, because when you do, you'll see that the very idea that there are domestic and international threats is a myth. All of the problems we face today, problems like unemployment, debt, climate change, terrorism, nuclear proliferation, even the spread of pandemic viruses involve other nations. So please take a moment to pick up the Watchman's Rattle. It's a perspective you'll not find anywhere else, and it offers us solutions you won't find anywhere else. Get the Watchman's Rattle. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Just about everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are good for our health, but not everyone knows how to build a healthier plate. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. For each meal, nutrition experts recommend filling half of your plate with fruits and veggies. Whether it's fresh berries with your breakfast cereal, a wrap filled with your favorite roasted vegetables for lunch, or a medley of crunchy veggies for a pre-dinner nibble, Dole provides the freshest and highest quality produce available. When you load up on all the nutritional good stuff, you give your meal an instant boost of color, flavor, and texture, plus vitamins and minerals and fiber, everything your body needs to succeed. For nutritional inspiration and to learn more about Dole's fresh, whole, and cut vegetables and a full line of berries, visit Dole.com. 
With Dole as your partner in health, the possibilities are endless. Visit Dole.com. Hello, Trudy. You fancy some BBC then? What, the telly? No, I mean bangers, beans and chips, missus. Ooh, I'm a bit peckish. Are you making tea then? No, I thought we'd go to the Britannia Arms in Capitola. You know they've got a new one right on the beach. Core blimey, does that place have the same menu? Yes, and some lovely new appetizers as well. Steamed mussels, grilled artichokes, ahi tartar. That sounds delicious. You know what? I think I'm going to decide when I get there. I might go with the fish and chips, the chicken curry, or ribeye steak with Yorkshire pudding. Well, they always pour a nice pint there as well. Oh, I love a glass of cider. Right, we're off then, and you can buy the first round. Because two Brits are better than one. Britannia Arms are now in two locations, in Capitola Village at the end of the Esplanade and at 8017 SoCal Drive in Aptos. Lovely jubbly. Toodles. We've all heard the term baby boomer referring to those born from 1946 to 1964. There are an estimated 80 million baby boomers with the first wave hitting the Social Security and Medicare systems in recent years with more to follow. Many healthcare experts are predicting epidemics of Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, heart disease and cancer among this group. However, these impending epidemics can be averted, as there is a new group emerging. This group we call the baby bloomers, because despite their chronological age, they are still physically fit, active, working, and playing. They've heard Dr. Wallach's message regarding diet, lifestyle, and nutritional supplementation. So while many around them diminish in health and vitality, they are blossoming and blooming into vibrant, healthy, on-the-go people. Wouldn't you rather be a Longevity Baby Bloomer? For more information or to order, call Andy or Phyllis Anderson at 888-245-0300. That's 888-245-0300. Welcome back to the Costa Report. Our guest today is the former overseer of TARP and author of the runaway bestseller, Bailout, Mr. Neil Borowski. So now let's talk for a moment about the real victims of these ill-conceived derivatives and collateralized credit swaps, the people who lost their homes. Now, as I understand it, out of 729,000 Americans who applied to have their mortgages restructured, half were disqualified. Now, out of the half that were qualified for programs, only about a third had their mortgages adjusted. But can I tell you what really bothers me about how badly this program was handled? Um most people, when they discovered they could no longer pay their mortgage, they put their homes up for sale. And that makes perfect sense that they would do something like that. And I think what the public doesn't know is that if you had your house on the market, you were ineligible for a remodification. Now, can you explain to me how that makes any sense at all? Didn't they want these families to do everything they could to prevent from going into foreclosure, including liquidating their property? This is, you know, this is this is one of the, the great failures of of the, of the bailout, and I think, frankly, of, of of the Obama administration, uh, is how to deal with the housing problems. And you know, one of the things when you look at the mortgage modification program, which was under the TARP umbrella, um, and it doesn't make any. There's many aspects of the program that simply don't make sense if you go at it from the perspective that the program was supposed to do as it was announced, which is to help up to four million families stay in their homes. It makes no sense. Uh, but one of the things that we found out, um, this was sort of in late 2009, when it was, it was fairly obvious that the program was never going to meet its goal and that it was 
so riddled with conflicts of interest and giveaways to the banks and enabling the banks to really abuse homeowners. And there's this in, there were incentives that were built into the program that actually made it more profitable at times for the banks to string out a borrower uh, and then pull the rug out from under them and foreclose on them than giving them a permanent modification. Like that was the financial incentive built in that none of it really made sense. And mm-hmm. until we, we pressed Geithner, Secretary Geithner, on the program, and he said at a meeting, and, and I'll never forget these words, that the program was going to help, well, it might not help all those homeowners that it was promised, uh, it was going to help the banks by helping to, quote-unquote, foam the runway for them. And he explained that Treasury's calculation, the banks could handle so many millions of foreclosures without you know, triggering another crisis and another round of bailouts and, and them being rendered insolvent, but that this crisis... This program was going to help extend that out by, as I said, foaming the runway for them. And all of a sudden, a lot of these things start to make sense. If the goal of the program is to extend it out, then it doesn't really matter if, if a homeowner gets strung along for 8, 10, 12 months and then foreclosed, because it will have accomplished that foam the runway goal. Uh, and it, it also explains why Treasury never took any of the necessary steps to discipline or punish the banks who would violate program rules with impunity in order to get to those profit, those profit opportunities. Um, again, doesn't make sense if your goal is to help 4 million people. Makes perfect sense if this was just another type of bailout of Wall Street, uh, described, described basically in sheep's clothing as a program that was supposed to help Main Street. Well, it also explains why so many of the TARPS monies were never um, were never used uh, because it was a it was a false program. It gave and and it did the worst possible thing. It took people who were trying to save the roofs over their heads and gave them hope. And it was a false hope. They were strung along and and very few qualified. Now, there's a question I've been one dying to ask somebody who was intimately familiar with TARP, and that is that there seem to be so many solutions out of this uh, mortgage fiasco. Uh, I was raised in Japan and uh, other parts of Asia, and it's very common there for mortgages to be 99 years. There's no 30-year mortgages. They, I guess they're, they just have a longer view of things. And it seemed to me that if the government could work with the banks and just simply extend the notes out, it would bring the payments down and allow people to stay in their homes. We wouldn't have these suburban ghettos that have been abandoned. Um, it just seemed like it was a, a very simple solution. Um, why wouldn't have that, why wouldn't that work? Um, again, the, the, you know, that presumes that the goal is to keep people in their homes. Oh, that's um, right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, like, you know, it, it, was, it was remarkable. I mean, things that we would, we would suggest, which included aggressive use of principal reduction, because these homes were so overvalued and the loans were so overvalued and there was never hope of them getting paid back. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than continue, it was essentially these accounting gimmicks and games uh, by the banks to pretend that these loans on their books were worth more than they actually were, let's sort of recognize reality and help homeowners bring down payments and, and ultimately uh, something that would be in the better interest of the country as well as the homeowners in the broader economy. But we got knocked down every time and time again because anything that could potentially force the banks to recognize losses, anything that wasn't part of this extend everything out, while well, all the other mechanisms of the bailout were, which were put into place, as Treasury officials told me, in order to help the banks, quote-unquote, earn their way out of this. You know, so that those profits could return, we're, we're never going to be viable solutions uh, from Treasury's perspective, and and that's the reason why in 2010, 
Wall Street enjoyed a record bonus season, uh, even while the country remained mired in this a recession or you know what, what they call a recovery, which is really one in, in name only for so many people. Uh, but that was part of the policy. It wasn't about rational things to help homeowners. Uh, it was to help preparing the banks to earn their way out, to have to return those profits again uh, under, I think, was a, a very mistaken ideological belief that what's good for the big banks is good for the country, um, something that I think has been quite easily proven to be wrong and incorrect. And now we have a situation where the banks aren't making mortgages at all. Right. I mean, and then that's part of the problem is that when you when you have these incentives that are built into the system um, that drives their economic activity, not necessarily to what is traditional banking, which is, of course, collecting deposits and making loans. Uh, there could be more well, money. Mostly they're up. in the credit card business. I mean, we've got Premier Bank out in, I think it's North Dakota. I'm not sure about that. Uh, charging 79.9% on a credit card. Well, that's remarkable. I mean, why, why, why would any bank... Uh, loan a uh, make a home loan at uh, two, three, four, five percent. If they can get eighty percent on a credit card, or take that same that same available money and send it over to London and make a multi or a hundred billion dollar bet on some credit synthetic uh, that could have a huge, huge potential return if it goes well. And if it doesn't, well, there's always the taxpayer there to bail us out once again. And and that's part of the problem with the too big to fail system. It doesn't incentivize the banks to go out and make boring old loans that only earn a couple point, you know, a couple percentage points. Um, it encourages them to go for the the really huge returns uh, without constraints about uh, worrying about whether they're going to have to bear the losses and not really wondering if they're going over the line or crossing a line. Uh, because they know that they won't be held accountable. And it seems as though TARP was a huge opportunity, a a huge leverage to bring that into check. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, And, you know, it's important for people to remember that the stated purpose of putting the money into the banks was so that they would lend it. But then Treasury put no conditions, they gave no incentives, um, and had and fought not only had no transparency, but fought tooth and nail against our efforts to bring transparency uh, so we could see what was going on with the money. So, um, well, Romney made the point that uh, you know if you lend now to an unqualified borrower, there are certain punitive measures that'll be implemented against a bank. But that the definition of what a qualified or unqualified borrower is not clear. And so the banks are a bit paralyzed. I, I think there's something to that. I mean, I think that the qualified mortgage, I think, was a little oversimplified last night. I think it, mm-hmm. it really happens. It really is only supposed to deal with a small part of, of, of securitization, mm-hmm. you know, that process by which loans are bundled and, and turned into bonds. Um, and the question of whether the, the bank that's putting together that deal has to keep some of the, it, the exposure to that. To those so what, what's it going to take for banks to start making home loans again? I mean, ultimately, it's sort of going to have to be, we're going to have to see a much more robust and improving economy um, so that we have some sustained uh, wind at the back of the housing market so banks can go back to feeling that they're going to, um, you know, ultimately going to be able to, to, to resell or foreclose at a profit with rising house prices. Um, we're going to need to see a broader economic recovery um, before, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem. And that's one of the lost opportunities of TARP was to address that that head-on by trying to put a floor under the housing market by doing the common sense of mortgage modifications um, so that we wouldn't have these foreclosures, which just put so much downward pressure on housing prices and then discourage banks from making new loans. But I think ultimately breaking them up, 
um, and getting the economy going again um, and, and, and dealing with these, these long-term issues um, is going to be key to, to getting things back to a sustainable recovery. Well, believe it or not, that is our program for today. But before I say goodbye, I want to thank you for your public service to the American people. Thank you, Mr. Borofsky. Thank you so much for having me on. If your station is leaving us after the first hour, our guest next week is former congressman from Colorado and presidential candidate Mr. Tom Tancredo. He'll be here to explain why it is important for English to be the official language of the United States and why illegal immigration poses a security threat to America. It's going to be a riveting show, so mark your calendars right now. That's Tom Tancredo next week right here on your favorite weekly news program. Until then, I'm Rebecca Costa, and you're listening to The Costa Report. Hi, I'm Judy Profeta, owner, broker, and active real estate agent of Alon Pinnell Realtors, a locally owned real estate company. We've operated on the peninsula for over 16 years, currently located on the corner of Ocean and Dolores and Unipero between 5th and 6th in downtown Carmel. We serve the Monterey Peninsula, focusing on Carmel, Pebble Beach, and the Carmel Valley. Our firm of about 50 agents represents everything from Carmel Cottages to Pebble Beach Estates and oceanfront properties to Valley Vineyards. We are actually known for our vast inventory of fine properties. Drop by and see us, or better yet, visit our website at apr-carmel.com. That's apr-carmel.com. Or you can give us a call at 831 621-1040. And make sure you tell them Judy sent me. Hi folks, Warren Knox here of Knox Roofing. Going through my tackle box the other day brought to mind all the choices we have. Lures like a Castmaster, a Wobble Right, Super Dupers, Ford Fenders, a Crocodile, Panther Martin, or a Blue Fox. A Hoochie might work. Hard to know which one. All work differently. When it comes to hiring a roofing contractor, it's a lot like a tackle box. Lots of choices between contractors. Some look flashy, talk, dress fancy, have a lot of promises, and can be very convincing and pretty. But when it comes to your home, especially your roof, there's only one choice to get the job done right, and that's Knox Roofing. So folks, don't get lured in by a flashy contractor. Knox Roofing tells it straight. We have a track record, unsurpassed in the community. If poor workmanship and substandard materials is what you're looking for, Knox Roofing is not for you. So give Knox Roofing a call today. We'll be a good catch for you at 461-0634. Thanks, folks. From San Jose to Salinas, Red Hot News Talk, AM 1080, KSCO, Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.